Where shall we begin? Kathy Hardy. I just have a question about, before we start the discussion, what is it in us that makes us unwilling to accept some of these things? <laughs> my, my thought is um, we have a hard time really not believing the universe is about us. Um, and to be told that the universe is about God and the, st the story of a father who loves his son and gives a people to his son, which is how I'd frame human history. It's a father who loves his son and is proud of his son and who, as a love gift, gives his son a redeemed humanity and that really all of creation is, exists to get us to the place where the son's redeemed behold him in glory. That's the, the telos of everything, is to get to there. Uh, when you realize, in some sense, we're incidental, <laughs> we get caught up in this intra-Trinitarian love, it, it, we, buck, we bucket that. Um, I, I think, yeah, there's few doctrines. I got a number of quotes, and I got to find them. I paired some up. But few, few doctrines other than this humble us and challenge us uh, than, than the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That'd be my take on why I think people don't like it. I'm sure there's other, other thoughts. Um, Carol. This goes along with what you were saying, but <clears throat> I just read this the other day in, in Psalm 119. David says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. And... You know, I have I have trouble with with having an attitude of being submissive to God and trembling at His judgments and living in fear of God. And our society around us—that's the last thing they want to do—is is, uh, have a fear of God and tremble at His judgments. Mm. So I, I think sometimes we just we don't we don't want to realize who God really is. Right. Yeah. We. But C.S. Lewis's line, he's not a tame lion, and we domesticate. Well, I don't know who said this, but somebody, some pithy person said, God created man in his image, and then we turned around and returned the favor. And we, we domesticate God down to something we're comfortable with. And that's probably the biggest thing I realized I'm reading my Bible is just the claims God makes from cover to cover so challenge those safe, comfortable, nice preconceptions that would just shatter them. That it's again and again. I got to go to scripture to remind myself who this God is, with whom we have to do, because there's such a tendency to sort of round the edges and you know give him a paint job and you know dress him up so he's nice and you know. And then you read the Bible and you go, whoa, yeah, okay, yes, Candy Jackson. I have a question, but it goes back to Genesis. Yes. Where did this sin come from? <laughs> I don't know. No, no, no. If, if you press me on this, I was talking to Jacob Moore this morning, and um, the fall of Satan is, in my mind, completely, um, completely inexplicable from my vantage point. Now, bear in mind Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, and the revealed things belong to us and to our posterity. So God, there's two categories of truth, those that God has revealed, those things that are secret. The origin of Satan's fall, I believe, is in the, um, the hidden things. So how a holy, sinless angel, from any construction, whether you're free will or minion, Calvin, whatever, from any construction, how an angel, without an intermediary, without seeing through a glass dimly, is beholding God in his glory and gets it into his head, I can defeat him, I have no idea. No idea how that happens. Uh, once, but once we get past Satan's fall, which I, I will freely admit is, from what we know, a mystery to me. I do not know. Everything else can work because Adam and Eve can be made um, sinless. And with the external temptation, this idea gets introduced first to Eve and to Adam that I don't think ever would have naturally originated within them, which is, can I really trust God? And Satan's like, can I really say, can you really trust him? And then everything falls like dominoes from there. But the original spark, I have no clue. And you ask a great question, and I will freely admit, I mean, if anyone wants to take a swing at how Satan fell, I will give you all the mic and all the time. Um, I'm going to punt and say, yeah, I don't know. But you've hit upon 
the mystery, no doubt. But I think that's a problem for everybody, everybody across the boards. Um, Ron Ludwig. Can um, prayer change God's mind? Sure. And no. Well, here's 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 the point, and and one of the one of the things you got to grapple with is when you deal with God, and you deal with these claims, is that God has um, two ways we can speak of God's will. We have God's will of decree and will of desire. The same thing's true of us. We want multiple conflicting things. I want to lose weight. I want to eat ice cream. You know, I can't do both. Uh, and so in like the Ten Commandments, God says what he wants us to do. He wants us to be holy as he is holy. He wants us to honor and obey him. And yet we saw passages where, you know, God takes credit for not that happening. And so we've got to distinguish between what God has determined will be, his will of decree, his sovereign will, and what has been God's will of desire. So when we're speaking of things from, uh, I'll use this, the Classic case in point would be uh, Exodus 32 to 34, where Moses intercedes to the people of Israel. God says, I will destroy them, and I will start over with you. And Moses intercedes for them on their behalf, and God relents. And the text says, so God relented from the disaster or the calamity or the evil he had intended to do. And you keep reading your Bible, and you realize, in one sense, God had planned that as well. And yet in another very real sense, what God is revealing to Moses and what he's revealing to us is, hey, I can set a course of action and you can pray and you can change things and then I will respond. I mean, that's the whole point of Nineveh, right? Is God sends a prophet. Jonah's message to Nineveh was not an overt call to repentance. It was simply an announcement of judgment. Yet 30 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people reason to themselves, if our case is hopeless, why tell us? And so they say, perhaps... Perhaps the Lord will be merciful, and they humble themselves, and they rip their clothes, and they put on sackcloth and ashes. And what happens? God doesn't destroy Nineveh. But he sent a prophet to tell them he was going to. So absolutely, from our vantage point, our actions and our prayers affect things. So the word change, I generally don't like, just because depending on what vantage point, you can misunderstand it. What is absolutely clear is the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or affects much. Our prayers are effective Things happen because of our prayers. Absolutely no need to qualify that statement at all. Does our prayer change things? Are we talking about big, overarching, end from the beginning, sovereign plan? No. Does it change? Yeah. But our prayers are effective. Does that, that work for you, Ron? No? Okay. Okay. No, go. Well, I guess um, I had mentioned I was reading the Power yeah. of Prayer series, and in there it it almost implies to me that if we pray fervently, fervently enough and hard enough that we have the ability to change God's mind and then the, the, old, the saying, if I had faith, the small as a mustard seed, I can move mountains. Right. So, and, 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 and that's what Exodus says. In light of Moses' prayer, the Lord relented. So there is a biblical way of speaking whereby you can pray and, using biblical terminology, the Lord can relent. The Lord can change what he was going to do. Um, obviously, when you factor in other biblical passages where God declares in from the beginning, things like that, that didn't catch God by surprise. In fact, I'd take it even a step further. Where did that good desire in Moses arise to intercede for Israel? Did that well up from his goodness from within him? I, I would suggest that even that's an evidence of God's grace, that God put that desire into his heart because God wants to display who he is. And part of who he is, we learn, is he's a God who will listen to a righteous intercessor, which sets up Christ's current ministry interceding on our behalf. But we only learn that God is a God who listens to mediation, starting actually with Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But he fails because you can't even find 10, and then actually relenting and listening to Moses. So in, in, the, in the history of salvation, that's what God is revealing about himself. Um, he's righteous, he's holy, he listens to righteous and faithful mediation. So absolutely, from one vantage point, 
our prayer can change God's purpose. That, that's inescapable from Exodus and other passages. Yet that's not the whole story because what, did God not know that was coming? Did God not, was he not aware that that would happen? So again, that's why I prefer simply my prayer is effective. If I pray hard enough and, and I pray in faith, like things are going to happen. That's undeniably clear in scripture. Our, our prayer affects things. Change all depends on from which vantage point you're looking. Absolute sovereign or from our perspective. Does that make more sense where I'm getting at with that? I just want to guard against the notion that God's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Well, I guess I'll do this then. You know, as if that's what God's doing. Yeah, that's kind of my question is, does that affect the sovereignty of God? No. Because God can speak in both of those ways. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. When in, um, I think it's still Exodus, when God speaks about the Canaanite practices of offering their children up, it says that they do things that never even entered into my mind that they would do. Now, either we have a denial there of omniscience, or God is using the strongest possible language to describe how much he abhors and abominates what they're doing. And that's where we've got to let the analogy of Scripture rule, where clearer passages, passages, passages is, is, um, shed light on less clear. So you get in Exodus, the Lord relented. And if all you had was Exodus 34, you might think, man, God changed his mind and didn't see that one coming. That surprised him. And then you read the rest of the Bible and you realize God's sovereign. Like, okay, God is, here's the way I look at, and we can look at other examples in Exodus 34, but Exodus 32 to 34 is the one I got most in my mind. And it'll do. God is revealing to Moses what he will do, what is right and fitting for him to do, given the current circumstance. There is no mediator. I'm going to destroy the people. This is what I'm going to do. Then the circumstance changes. A mediator arises. And God's response changes. Because the circumstance is different. Just like in Nineveh. As things stand, I'm going to blow them up. Then things change. And the people repent. As things stand, I'm going to pass over and pardon. So as, as we pray, we on earth change things. And God may well respond differently than he had uh, otherwise would have responded that's, it's, it's like, you don't want to dump in here, or am I mungling this enough for myself? Does that, does that make any more sense, or am I just muddying the waters wrong? Okay. Anyone want to add to that, or? Oh, microphones, microphones. Actually, hold, you're next, you're next. Amy? Oh. Go. Um, I know this isn't exactly what you're asking, but I know several years ago, I really struggled with that whole notion of, well, if if God is sovereign, then why even pray? Like, what's the point? If you know, first for things like you know events or things that might change. And um, I read through a book called "Lord Teach Me to Pray." I think that's what it's called by John MacArthur, and it was so helpful for me. And I know it's like I said, this isn't exactly what you're hitting at, but it really made me step back and realize that perhaps the only thing that God is going to change through me praying is me and my perspective on things and how God um, is uses it as a grace for me to be able to um, kind of be in that time with him, to draw closer to him, to have a more godly perspective on the scenario, um, to have hope and his promises. And so perhaps the event's not going to change at all, um, but my response to it and my ability to um, rest in his sovereignty is strengthened through prayer. Oh, Lee, I thought you were going up next. No? Oh, Lee is. Okay. Well, uh, um, <laughs> it's, I, what Amy said is so true because sometimes everybody does pray and pray and pray and then the person dies. Sure. Or the bad thing happens. And at that point, you, it's, I always think of it, it's like after, I, I, we did that for my sister-in-law that had breast cancer, a very young woman, young kids, every beautiful Christian lady that had every reason to live, but she died. And I was like pretty ticked at God at the time because I thought, why, I'm like you, why do we even bother? Why God's going to do what he's going to do? And it turns out, you know, there, there are things that happened that were good, that he brought good out of it, but still it was pretty horrible. But it came to me after, it was kind of like I was getting my knees broken like, you know, you're just, he's king. 
Sovereign oh. means king. He's a total sovereign, and there's he does what he wants, and we should just bend that knee willingly before it gets broken. Okay. I might add that Paul even talks about how he prayed to have a thorn removed yeah. from his side, but the Lord did not remove it. Right. Well, and there's, there's, and we, I want to say both because I've read some people. Well, actually, if you have that Puritan Valley of Vision, one of the prayers, literally, I got to find it, but it basically says the only point in prayer is just so that you change my heart to line up with yours. And God does that in prayer. But I don't want to eliminate what I think is the equally biblical teaching that we should pray, as Jesus says, expecting to receive. What, what we're asking for. Now, God might say no, but we should not just pray saying, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I'm just coming before you so you can change my heart to you. I, I think that undercuts too much what Jesus says and the point of the persistent widow and these things he taught them that they might pray and never give up and, and things like that. So I think both are operative, but it, it's too easy in my mind to simply say, no, prayer is just about changing me. What you said, Amy, is absolutely right. Prayer changes my heart and brings me into union and, and resonating with where God's at. And we're told prayer frequently, not, not always. Remember, G Jesus says, what father, when his son asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? He doesn't say that he's always going to give him an egg. He won't give him a scorpion. Um, God may not give me what I ask for. He's not going to give me a bad gift. So, I want to leave room for both and not simply say, you should never expect what you pray for to happen because prayer is just about conforming your heart to God's. No. There's too many passages that insist my prayer frequently has results, and I should be looking for those results. Uh, and prayer brings my heart into union and resonance with God's, which is what Amy was saying. Um, and Naomi wants to weigh in. Does that mean that when Christ prayed for the cup to pass him, that he was expecting that God would pass the cup? Because that doesn't seem to make very much sense. Christ, I would say, expected that if there was any way for the cup to pass, he would. So when the Father says no, conclusion, there is no way. What isn't the case is the Father has a plan B, but he decided not to use it. I mean, his Jesus' wording is very specific there. Father, if there's any way. Jesus is not negotiating the ransom of his redeemed, of his people. Jesus is not saying, I don't want to save them. The concept is, if there's any other way to get these people to heaven than me dying, can we do that? Right? So he's not in any way capitulating, flip-flopping on the ultimate goal. It's simply, Father, is there any other path that can be taken? And then he says, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And the answer was, no, there is no other path to be taken. But I think Jesus could be quite confident that it wasn't as though, well, there's another way we could do it, but that'd be more difficult, so we'll just do this instead. That was not what happened. Um, but no, that's, that's an excellent observation, Naomi. Excellent question. Okay. On uh, the back page, uh, section F, it says, while God himself never does anything evil, he does bring about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures. Yes. And that just kind of confused me a bit. I would have thought that would have said immoral creatures. The category moral simply means capable of moral action, not righteous, unrighteous. A rock is not a moral creature. A rock cannot please God or sin. I mean, actually, a rock can please God, but a rock cannot do something praiseworthy, and it can't sin. Animals don't appear to be moral in that sense. So when I simply say moral creatures, I mean creatures capable of good and evil, capable of obedience and faithlessness. That, that's all that's meant by moral there. Morally capable creatures would just as easily be translated then. Lois, sweet. I've a number of times said, God, whatever happens, God either causes it or God allows it. And after the message this morning, I'm thinking that God allows it is a poor description. Except there are biblical, I get what you're saying, except uh, there are biblical texts that speak of that. When Moses talks, when Jesus talks about divorce, says that Moses permitted this because of your hardness of heart. God allowed this because of your hardness of heart. So I wouldn't feel too uncomfortable saying God allowed this. If, as, 
if you don't think you're fully dodging the problem. In other words, there's, there's a sense, God stands behind righteousness and evil asymmetrically, right? So it's not the same. So when, when God works in me, both to will and to do, he puts the righteous desire in place. He puts it there and he brings it to fruition so that I do the right thing. He, he's, he's active, right? I do not think that's how God works with evil and evil people. In other words, take this coffee cup. Um, imagine a r- very sort of um, clumsy illustration. This is Pharaoh, and uh, the coffee cup's only filled up to here with evil. And then God hardens Pharaoh by pouring some more evil in. So Pharaoh is at evil level four, and then when God's done with him, he's at evil level seven. At evil level four, Pharaoh wasn't evil enough to t- say, no, you can't go. But at evil level six, now Pharaoh's evil enough. I'll show you another way how I think this works. Watch me lower this cup if I don't knock it over. Okay, here we go. I'm removing restraint. God's conscience that he gives us is a grace. He's not obligated to give it to us, right? Is God, anyone want to argue, no, God is obligated to give us a conscience. Human government that restrains sin, grace again. Fear of man, even to some extent. These are the reasons why we as unbelievers weren't as wicked as we could be. We, we were afraid of what people would think, and we were afraid of going to jail, and our unconscience bothered us. What if God hardening Pharaoh simply, and I'm not saying this is how it works. I'm just showing you here's a way it could work where God isn't pouring in wickedness into Pharaoh. Pharaoh wakes up in the morning, and guess what? His conscience doesn't bother him as much as it did the day before. Pharaoh doesn't really care what people think as much as he did the day before. And God is letting the leash out, so to speak, removing grace and restraint so that Pharaoh's, let me switch metaphors. Think of a garden. Um, Think of a garden that has in it all the seeds of all the weeds in the world, which I think most gardens do, right? They're just weeds. Just You don't have to plant weeds. They just grow up. And a good gardener tends the weeds and pulls them up. And that's what the conscience, I'll use the conscience, fear of, fear of man, government, as doing it. And then the gardener says one day, I'm just going to let those weeds grow. I'm just going to let them grow right up tall. And that's what God does with Pharaoh. That's God's hardening of Pharaoh. I, I do think... The Bible does not say, and I do not think, God made Pharaoh more wicked so that Pharaoh could really say, I wasn't as wicked as all that till you messed with me and then I became wicked. Rather, God stands back and lets those weeds grow. He lets those weeds grow to full bloom. And that's part of how Pharaoh's active. He wants to harden his heart. He wants to not let them go. And he, he's fully engaged in his will, and so it's his fault. God's not stopping him any longer, something like that. But yeah, I, I think we would have a problem if we thought God's actively pouring in wickedness in the same way that God actively puts in righteousness into us. We have an alien righteousness from outside poured into us through faith in Jesus. I don't think that's what's going on with God and sin. So yeah, anyone want to, Amy? Okay. So I had the same question about allowing versus... Yeah. And so when you said that God did 9-11, um, I've always, in my mind, thought, you know, the evil existed and God just allowed it, kind of like you're saying with with the restraint thing, just removed restraint or whatever. But that wasn't what it sounded like when you said God did that. I I had an image of like him actually you know, planting the seeds in these guys' minds to do this kind of thing. Did I take that incorrectly? No, you didn't. Let me let me go to the text where I said that. Um, hey, Jeremy. Yes. Suggest how are you going to uh, touch on the issue of decree versus causation and how that all fits together? I can. Zeb, you got the mic. You do it, Matt. Come on. Um, well, this is my where notes. the theologians will use the language of decree uh, versus like causation. Causation is like the idea of like being the one actually doing the cause. Um, whereas decree is more of an issue of God's command and his overarching sovereignty. So, um, the, the way that most like, um, if you read like the Protestant confessions of faith, the historical ones, like the, um, the Westminster confession of faith, the London Baptist confession of faith, uh, the way that they phrase that is that, uh, is they, they've, form this in terms of decree that God decrees all things that come to pass. Um, so that would be that would, and the, like, again, the, the difference there would be that the decree is somewhat of a separation 
I guess you could say from the notion of causation, um, because we have very clear, clear passages stating God's decree, his, his decree and his declarations of everything that comes to pass throughout everything. So, I mean, okay. um, let me see if I can find the, I got my verse. Hold okay. on. Let me jump in. Amos, here's, here's my logic, Amy. Amos 3.6. Does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? Was 9-11 a disaster in the city of New York? There is a biblically faithful way of speaking of the Lord doing, causing 9-11. That's not to eliminate the causality of the other agents. We've got to be careful how we say it. I'm just saying, I'm not making 27 connections of logic. I'm just reading Amos 3.6. Does disaster, and here he's talking about the Babylonians sacking, destroying, looting, killing, rape, everything that happened when Jerusalem was taken over by Nebuchadnezzar. Unless the Lord has done it. If, you, if anyone who wants to think, argue I'm overstating what Amos says, fine. But I look at disaster falling in any city. This is, there's a real sense which you can say the Lord has done that. Now, we've got to parse out how did the Lord do that, and that doesn't eliminate the other people from doing it, but that's what it says. So that's there I said it. And I, and I said it knowing it was going to be provocative, but I, I want to let the full force and implications of what these texts are saying ring. Does disaster come upon a city unless the Lord has done it? There's another very real sense which the Lord permitted what they're doing, sure. But there's also a looking at it in which God can say, yeah, I did that. So, yeah. I have a oh. comment. So one way we can look at it and jumping off from what Zeb said is that God decreed to get glory from sin. He'd be glorified in these sins in his just punishment of those sins. So you see these acts of incredible depravity in the world and you need to be looking beyond that into God justifying himself in letting that happen and in punishing that sin so that we can be shown mercy for those deeds if we, again, he declares the means, so if we repent and turn or if he hardens our hearts, he has the right to punish that sin in hellfire and be glorified in that as well. So in a Reformed theology, we have, we have the purpose of sin, and then there's a purpose there, that 9-11 didn't happen for no reason. That even though God didn't reveal to us what the purpose was, we can ultimately say that there is a purpose, that we can see the sinfulness of sin, that we can see on that judgment day at the white throne, we can see while wow, God is absolutely just in punishing these people forever. Yeah. But let me add one further implication. Then, Debbie, you were next, and then we go to Doyle. Um, one of the things that I believe is a logical conclusion from Scripture um, is that not only do all things work together for God's glory and good, but that we live in the best possible world. What I, what I mean is this, is if you think to yourself, God did a great job making the universe, but it would have been better without the Holocaust. Then understand you can basically approach God and who can question who gave him instruction and who gave him understanding and who can, and you can say, actually, God, you did a really good job. It would have been better this way. I don't think you want to go there. And we know what God says about how he is jealous for his glory and jealous for his fame. And I conclude that God has maximized through the current state of affairs, his glory, the joy of his people, and that it's inconceivable that we could improve upon the state of affairs that he came up with. Uh, and if that's the case, then God truly does have a purpose in everything. And, and, I, and I think that as challenging as that is to look at, it brings a lot of comfort um, ultimately, because it means your suffering's not meaningless. Now, the other option is this. My, my mother's MS, my sister's MS, has no purpose, no meaning. Just stuff happens. We live in a fallen world. Oops, sorry. Or God, God intends this. God, God is doing something with this. God will work something good through this. I, I think the second answer gives more comfort than the first. This is meaningless. There's no purpose behind this. You just, just bad chance, bad luck. Oops. 
I'll see if I can turn it into something good. I, I think there's more comfort in believing that God has an intention and a plan that we don't know now. But, we, but to believe one day, I will see what he was up to and I will praise him for it. One day, I will see his purposes and be satisfied. So one day, I'll understand why the Holocaust. I'll understand why 9-11. I'll understand why these things. I don't understand now. But I do believe fully that I will. And because God will be praised for those things. And how they fit. Just as we, we have got a category for this with the crucifixion of Jesus, don't we? The most evil event that ever happened. And we praise God for it every Sunday. Don't we? We praise God for planning the greatest evil that ever happened on earth every Sunday, right? Because we understand he planned the single greatest evil that ever happened to do all of this good and praise him for all the good that he has done through the death of his son. I just think that'll hold true for everything. That's all. Debbie. Okay, this goes along with what you said about your mom or like if a baby dies or like those, that couple that was just killed in Indianola. So I always thought God didn't really, God didn't do it, but it happened. And now I'm kind of believing that God did do that. God did cause your mom. God did do these punish? things. Not punish? Not punish. Oh, not What did you say? I misheard you. I said you. God did do. Oh, cause. Sorry, cause. sorry, sorry, sorry. I just no, want to be clear. Punished. No, 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 no. I just wanted to clarify because when we talk about these things, precision, and that's why my power, that's why I did the PowerPoint. There, there's so many qualifications you got to put in so that people don't think you're saying what you're not saying. And, and so I thank you for bearing with me. And, and like I said, all that's going to be available. It's going up on the website today if you want to download it and, and do whatever you want with it. But um, let me find the verse. Um, hold on. Unsegun. I always believed before that he didn't cause those things. Right. They happened, but he didn't help cause them. Okay, go to, let's go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I am he. No, sorry. See now that I, even I, am he. There is none, there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I, I, I think we got to say in some sense, 32, 39. Deuteronomy 32, 39. And what's God claiming there? Life and death, sickness and health, and no one can stop him. No one can. And I just got to go, okay. Um, so, so, yeah, the Lord elsewhere um, talks about how he's the one that opens and closes the womb. He's the one who strikes with, with pest. I mean, he, everything ultimately finds its source from God and from his hand. And, and remember... The whole point of this morning's message is to, is to insist that does not eliminate the other causality, that does not eliminate the human agencies, the other factors. It's not only God, but it's God. And so when God says, hi, I'm God, and I'm not like everybody else because I kill and I make alive and I wound and I heal and no one delivers from my hand, I, I take him seriously at that and say, oh, okay. And, and I fully grant that is not the way we naturally want to think about God, and that is certainly not the way he's presented in most of Western evangelical Christianity. Most of Western evangelical Christianity has God does the nice stuff, and then either the world, chance, or Satan does the ugly, bad stuff. And yeah, this is challenging. I mean, I remember when I first read this, it blew my mind. Um, Carol. Oh, wait, wait for the mic. I remember... Um, some, some years ago, a, a guest speaker was here standing right there where you're sitting. And uh, I, I don't remember the full context. I think it might have been his wife had died of cancer or something. And, and someone, uh, he, he related that someone said to him, don't you, don't you ever get bitter or angry at God? 
And his response was, how can I be bitter or angry? God grieves about this more than I do. And I think that's the side, I mean, so we don't understand that. How can God cause and bring all these things to pass? But yet when they happen, he grieves and, and you know, Jesus wept, you know, mm. G, you know, mm. and um, I, I think that's the side of it. We need to. Amen. Amen. And then back to your question, the book of Job. We know in Job, Satan killed Job's family. We know in Job, Satan struck Job with sores and disease. And we know in Job that Job said the Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips or accuse God of wrong. That, that's the other thing that's tough about this, is when you, when you really start to look this stuff in the face, what you realize is God owes us nothing. That's a frightening place to be. He owes us nothing. Um, that's not true. <laughs> he owes us wrath. He owes us hell right now. Yes, yes. Zeb is quite correct. Um, thank you for correcting me on that one, Zeb. I appreciate it. Um, but all the things we think, the rights we have, all of those rights and all of those fair shots, and hey, how come you did this for this person, but you didn't do it for me, all of that stuff just flies out the window. And, and God's repeated statements of, hi, I'm God, and I do what I want. You got to trust me. Now, what we learn as we see what God does is he's good, and we see his, um, we see his goodness and so we do trust him. But at the end of the day, God says, look, I'm not really going to explain myself to you right now. You just got to trust me. And I'm God and I do what I want. But what I want is righteous, good, and wonderful. Trust me, will you? And that's ultimately what God's calling us to do. Kathy. Um, I'm glad you qualified that last thing. I think what we have to realize and we have to remember is that when God says, I'm God and I do what I want to do, he doesn't say it as a human being would no, say it. No. And sometimes we look at it like he's saying it that way, right. and it's not. And um, just as Carol pointed out, and your last statement there, Pastor Jeremy, and all the verses on God's love, mm -hmm. all of these things happen. Mm -hmm. all, he, he causes these things. The verbiage is also very limiting to us. When we use words, God causes, God did it. You know, we yeah. know that God is, you know, what does it say in James? He, he does not cause anyone to be tempted. Right. And so, so, and the reason we pray is we pray for our faith and we watch and we see what God does. Mm -hmm. You know, Jeb died of cancer. We prayed for him for 13 years, but we watched all those years all the blessings and all the things. I mean, the overall thing happened. He died. But in all the things that happened, you can see hundreds of things that God used to glorify himself. And so I think the point that we have to be at is we have to be able to say anything, Lord, anything at all on our face before him because oh. he is God. But there are two types of people. There are the right brain people and the left brain people. There are the Pauls and the Silas or Barnabases. There are the people that are engineers and there are the people that are artists. And those people use different language to describe the same thing. And what we all have to realize is God is sovereign and God loves us. Both of those things are equal. Mm. Well, that's, that's an important thing to remember as well. I've, I was talking to a friend of mine about this and his wife a week or two ago. The same Bible that insists God's sovereign is the same Bible that insists God absolutely loves us with an unfathomable love. And so we dare not pit Scripture against each other. So if we want to say, well, wait a second, this seems to undermine the, the same. How can we trust the Bible in point A but not point B? The same Bible that will insist God's sovereign, 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 insists that he is love, insists that we should be praying that we might grasp the height, the depth, the width, and the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding for us. And so we can't pick and choose which truth claims we want to hold to. So, yeah, it, 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 although I always thought there were three people, those who are good at math and those who aren't. Three types of people, those who are good at math, those who aren't, yeah. Okay, there you go. Linda. Okay, I think this probably follows up 
goes along with what Kathy just said. Um, Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And also the verse about the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. But neither one says... You know, if I'm praying for something for, you know, personal for myself that I would like God to do, but he may say no to me, but that doesn't mean that that's not for the good of someone else who loves him. And so... You and I don't always know what's best for us. Right. Just like my children who ask me for candy don't know what's best for them. There's a time for candy and there's a time for Brussels sprouts. And so availeth much doesn't mean it's going to avail for us and what we're asking for, right, but right. it might avail for right. someone else who's right. following him, and we just don't get to see what that is, how that works for someone else. Yeah, no, I, and, and that's why, oh, Jacob, go. Um, Jacob. I might go a little too far, but we'll see. No, um, the, never. I don't the believe thing it. that... I keep, that keeps popping into my mind to go back to Kathy's original kind of question of why do we buckle at this. I, when I think of, okay, God did 9-11 or whatever um, city was destroyed. How's about the tsunami in Indonesia? How many people died in that? Right, thousands, whatever. I think and hundreds of thousands. Whatever horrible ways they died. And when you think of war, you think of rape and pillage and other things that yeah. in our minds are incompatible. Um, and I think the reason we find it incompatible with God is that we think so highly of ourselves. There's a sense in which, in my mind anyway, I think well, how could that possibly happen to someone and that be a good thing? And I wonder if it isn't because we think we deserve something or owed something that is good or uh, in some way different than what we receive from God, not recognizing that he does what he wants. God is in heaven and he does what he wants. He doesn't need to ask our permission. He doesn't owe us treatment. Uh, So when you see people you know, jumping out of buildings or doing something that you just realize they're suffering or someone is sick and they have cancer. Ultimately, we have trouble with that, I think, because deep down we think they don't deserve that. Mm. They deserve something different. Once we realize and stop and think that each and every one of us, apart from grace, deserves hell, you stop and you flesh that out then you realize anything that isn't hell is grace and undeserved. Which, and, the, and these are terrible things to say. I mean, you don't want to say these things callously. But that means I don't care how ugly of a scenario you think of, you read of, you've experienced, you've seen on this earth. It's better than hell. There's not a single person in hell who would not beg and plead to trade places with the most miserable earthly circumstance you can think of. And if we get that God justly could condemn the entire human race to hell. The Bible assumes we're supposed to marvel that he doesn't do that. It's amazing that he doesn't pour out his wrath on all of us, that he delays, that he passes over. And we come at it the other way and say, well, why weren't you more patient, God? And why weren't you... like?" The Bible's narrative goes the exact opposite way. It's the story of these cosmic rebels and this God who is long-suffering and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Isn't it amazing how patient and long-suffering God is? And and we get the man at the center, and we come at it the exact opposite way. And, And we start asking all these questions that evidence what you were saying, Jacob, our We've placed ourselves at the center of the story. Instead of being amazed that God's wrath tarries. I mean, think about that. God has not struck every single one of us dead today, and yet every single one of us has done or said things that would perfectly warrant that. And we don't marvel at his grace. We get upset when he does strike someone dead. So it's, it's tough. But he does, I mean, Job, he does us no wrong. I mean, I remember... I remember when my son was first born, my oldest son was first born, and I was holding him in my arms. 
I remember the thought coming into my head and just praying, Lord, you've given us this child, and Lord, you do us no wrong if you take him. I'll be broken. I'll be broken. God does me no wrong. No wrong. I don't want that to happen. I pray against it. I trust that if that type of tragedy comes, that grace that will, that will support me and, and, and strengthen me, God does me no wrong if my wife and family die in a car crash on the way home today. He, he, he doesn't owe me that. Rather, I should marvel at the grace that I have a wife and family. And, and those are terrible things to say, like, like weighty things to say. But I firmly believe them. God does me no wrong. And that's the whole point of Job. I didn't, I'm not responsible for my health, so if God strikes me with sickness, he hasn't taken something away from me that was mine by right. Go. Just um, to say that, quoting scripture mm. after Romans 9, when he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will... Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Just exactly what you're saying, but in, yeah, quoting scripture. The last few minutes, um, unless I got a burning question, I'd just like to share one personal um, anecdote through this, and then we can, we can go. And like, we got, like I said, we got three more weeks. Bring me your questions. Send me an email. Write them down. We'll try to deal with this. I know this is hard stuff, and I by no means expect you all to be fully on board, wrapping your head around it. Work, chew, press through this stuff. Um, and, and I, yeah, the Spirit, the Lord will give insight and wisdom. But one of the things I think that's helpful is that God doesn't always show us what he's up to. But the few times he does, it's so manifestly wonderful and good. I think it helps us um, trust by faith in the times we don't understand. Uh, and, I, and I can just use a personal illustration. I got a keepsake in my office to remind me of this. Um, so in the, uh, in, uh, let's see, I tried this quickly. I got four minutes. Okay. Um, not get choked up. Hold on. <laughs> so in the summer of 1999, the Lord begins to convict me of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I become fearful of standing before him. That leads me to begin reading my Bible. That leads me to go, uh-oh. That leads me to salvation. Because remember, I thought I was a Christian the whole time. I was just a bad one. And in that context, um, I begin to uh, uh, witness to my father, spend time with him. And that, that year, I got saved in the summer of 99. And that January, there was a conference in Boston um, Johnny Erickson Tata and some other people were at it. And somehow I got it into my head that God was going to put me into ministry. Um, I was just off by a decade or so. And, um, but I was convinced that God was going to put me into ministry. And somehow I became convinced that at this conference, I was going to meet some ministry or something to, um, to do this. And so, as a young new Christian, and I was very much going by my feelings and very much going by my um, you know, little thoughts. Maybe that's the spirit telling me this, and I was, I was chasing my tail like that, but you know, God was gracious. Well, I told the people at work, hey, guess what, guys? I'm going off to this conference, and uh, when I get back, I won't be working here anymore. I'll be off doing some ministry. And they said, yeah, yeah, okay, Jeremy, whatever. So I go off to the conference, and I quickly discovered what those of you who've been to such conferences discover, that missions organizations are not looking for untrained people that they have to feed who are 23 years old. <laughs> they were interested in people who had skills and training, and they were certainly interested in financial support. But a 23-year-old kid who could do nothing other than you know, hey, I'm here. They weren't terribly interested in. And so I came back from this conference kind of uh, crestfallen. Um, and the job I worked at had basically given all my hours to other people. They were able to, and there was a certain amount of like humiliation. It was like, oh, hey, Jeremy, so what ministry are you doing? Uh, you got any more hours? 
Oh, the holy roller needs some more hours. Okay. And so I was only able to work maybe 10 hours a week at this place. And that meant that I was down to substance level living, which meant I was spending a lot of time at my mom's house. Right, mom? Because parents will give you free meals. And you can do laundry. And uh, in that context, um, I spent a ton of time in my mom's house. And, um, and I just remember in, that, in all those months in the spring going, God, why? Why would you humiliate me like this? Why? I would want to serve you. And, and I went out on faith. And I told these people that. And it's just, I don't understand. And I can barely pay my bills. And it's just humiliating. Then my dad died. And uh, I remember as I was uh, um, processing all of that, I came across this, uh, Chris, this book he'd given me. My dad and I used to play a lot of chess and we play a lot of chess. I got this in my office. You can see it. I keep it there to remind me. And in my dad, who was a quadriplegic for the last two years of his life, in his chicken scratch of a handwriting, he eventually got some use of his hands. I read, um, okay, hold on, we got choked up, hold on. It's been so good to see so much of you these last, these, these last few weeks. May the games continue. And it suddenly occurred to me that my, I got to spend more time with my dad in the last two or three months of his life than I had for years. And that God, who doesn't give bad gifts, knew that was coming. And even though it took a little bit of pride swallowing on my part and some embarrassment, he gave me a good gift that I got to spend that time with my father. And in that time of, of spending time with my father, he made a profession of faith um, out, of, out of Catholicism. And so much good was worked through that. And I had the... I had the ingratitude to accuse him. Why have you done this? Why have you let this happen? Why have you embarrassed me? Why have you let me down? Why haven't you given me the thing I want? I want it now. And so I keep that book in my office so that I remember that and that I do not want to feel that shame and that ingratitude. I am convinced that what God is up to is good. And I'm convinced that in my finitude, I will not understand now. And I am committed to just trusting him with that. Anyway, our time is up. We'll pick this up in um, next week. God bless. Thank you.